Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. In today's podcast, mental health and pregnancy, we need to talk about it. I'm joined by Dr. Shari Luskin to discuss this extremely important topic. Fortunately, in medicine and in society, we are focusing more and more on mental health. Mental health issues are very common and if not addressed, can be devastating. Pregnancy is a particularly challenging time for women with mental health conditions. Pregnancy itself is an additional stressor, and activities that many women find beneficial for their mental health are more difficult to do, such as exercising, maintaining a certain diet, and sleeping. Also, there's a lot of concern and confusion regarding medication use in pregnancy, so many women end up stopping medications they need to maintain good mental health. This may be their own doing or based on advice from their OB or their psychiatrist, which is why we are so fortunate to have Dr. Luskin on today. Shari is a reproductive psychiatrist and is one of the world leaders in the field of psychiatric medication use in pregnancy. She's a terrific doctor and a true advocate for women with mental health challenges. I'm certain you will find her interesting and really informative. On Thursday, we discuss another chronic health condition in pregnancy, diabetes. Thanks a lot and have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. I'm here with Dr. Shari Luskin, who is a clinical professor of psychiatry, also has an appointment in the department of OBGYN, a reproductive psychiatrist, and an expert in medications in pregnancy uh, related to psychiatry and expert in psychiatry. We work together a lot. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. So just so our listeners understand a little bit about you, who you are. So tell us a little bit like, you know, where are you from? How'd you get into medicine, psychiatry, this line of work, and you know, any anything you want to tell us? So I am a native New Yorker, and I'm actually the third generation of physicians in my family. Very nice. I am too. Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm also, that. yeah, third what did, generation. What did your ancestors do? <laughs> so my, my father's father, who I'm named after, Nathan Fox also, uh, was an ophthalmologist. And then my father is a neurologist. And then me, I have a brother who's a physician. And also on my wife's side, she's also a third generation. She's not a physician, but her father her grandfather, her uncle, another uncle, all physicians. Fantastic. Yeah, a lot of doctors, a lot of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, my grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon mm -hmm. and my grandmother was an orthopedic surgeon. Whoa. Yeah. In, here in New York? Here in New York. She trained at Bellevue in 1918 to 19. And just a little bit of an aside on that yeah. one. She was one of two women in her intern year class. I can't imagine there were a lot of orthopedic surgeons who were women in 19. There weren't even a, a yeah. lot of women doctors, let alone surgeons. Yeah. Up until 1918, women were not allowed to work as doctors at Bellevue. Really? That's right. They could be nurses, but not doctors. The only reason they took in women physicians in 1918 mm -hmm. was because all the men were off at war. That makes sense. That's right. So she did her internship at Bellevue, and then she went on to become an orthopedic surgeon. Right. So that was the only benefit of World War One. And then my father was an orthopedic surgeon. My uncle was an orthopedic surgeon, and I kind of broke the mold. And you thought they were all crazy, so you went into psychiatry. Not exactly. <laughs> I, I tried to explain it to my dad that if you drew a line with psychiatry at one end and surgery at the other, when you 
bent the line and brought them together in a circle, uh-huh. we had a lot more in common than ah. psychiatry did with internal medicine. Okay, so that's he fair. actually bought that, which uh, was great. Or maybe he just didn't understand it and didn't want didn't want to you know fess up to that. So you're New Yorker, third generation physician. That's amazing. So you sort of had a sense that maybe you were going to do this from uh, from childhood. I think it was genetically programmed. Okay, that's nice. And so. How did you pick psychiatry specifically? Well, I really have made a lot of career decisions based on the mentorship I received. And in our first year of medical school at NYU, Mm -hmm. we had a really great professor who actually took us out into the field to meet with patients who were chronically mentally ill and also introduced us to the concept of multifamily groups and peer support. So it was very interesting, very right. exciting, and just seemed like a great opportunity to have kind of hands-on involvement, somewhat analogous to surgical right. medicine. Right. And I got hooked. So that's that's how it happened. And when did you start, I guess, focusing on reproductive psychiatry or women who are pregnant or getting pregnant or whatnot? That is uh an interesting story. I had always been interested in the overlap between general medical illnesses and psychiatric disorders. So I did a lot of consultation liaison psychiatry, both as a medical student and as a resident. And I did my residency at Bellevue. Right. And then that was the early part of my career. I focused on that. So I worked with patients who had cardiac disease and neurologic diseases like multiple sclerosis, did a lot of that. And in 1996, I went to a conference at the American Psychiatric Association where I met a group of doctors from Vancouver in British Columbia who had started a program in women's mental health, which was the reproductive psychiatry program there. So their expertise was in treating pregnant and postpartum women. Right. So I attended their course. Nobody was doing this in New York. Right. We had no training in it at Bellevue. Wow. At Bellevue, if you were pregnant and psychotic, treatment was three hots in a cot. That was it. Wow. And maybe restraints if you were agitated. Nobody wow. wanted to medicate them. They suffered through pregnancy terribly. One of my very first patients as a medical student on psychiatry was a pregnant woman with schizophrenia who was completely delusional throughout the whole pregnancy. It was mm-hmm. it was really awful. So anyway, I made the group of psychiatrists who have developed an expertise in using medications in pregnant women in addition to other therapeutic modalities like psychotherapy. Right focused psychotherapy. And the light bulb went off and I went up to them afterwards and I said, can I come see your program? And they said, we'll pick you up at the airport. When are you arriving? Right. And that was the start of my career in reproductive psychiatry. So I still work with that group. In Mm -hmm. fact, we're doing a conference. We're doing a virtual conference. (laughs) Of course. In October at the conference in quotes, conference (laughs) in quotes at the Canadian Psychiatric Association Mm -hmm. annual meeting in October. It's been a a very long and productive friendship that I've had with them. Right. And it's not that you just became interested in it. I mean, you really, I mean, you jumped into the deep end. You're doing this, you know, you're writing on it, you're talking about it, you're publishing on it, you're, you're all over it. I mean, and, and is it something that you just built on because it was interesting or because people just started coming to you because you were the only person really doing this? I think it it was really, really interesting. And Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to have an excellent mentor at NYU in the form of Charlie Lockwood, who was the chairman of OBGYN, who said, this is important. Yeah. You should be doing more of this. I'm going to give you an appointment in our in our department. And having that kind of backing from somebody who was so talented, so well-respected, 
was really, really important in fostering my career. And then our chairman of psychiatry at NYU, Bob Cankrell, was also right. supportive. But the support from the OBGYN department is really what got me heavily involved in this. Right. I mean, Dr. Lockwood Charlie is you know, he's a great guy. He's one of the world-renowned OBGYNs and maternal fetal medicine doctors. And he's a really forward-thinking type of person. And so he was actually, he and Andre Barber, my current partner, he was in his group, his partner. And yeah, he just, he was able to see things before they became, you know, a big deal to everybody else. And I think that it's, you know, looking back, it's not so, you know, extraordinary to say, hey, like, this is a really important topic, but it, it was a big deal then because people were not focusing on it. And I I love the fact that he, he brought you into the OBGYN department. And that's sort of, I guess, how our, our relationship it was like the the preconception right. of our relationship because you know at that group who was at NYU and got to meet you when they came over to Mount Sinai and then you shortly followed. Well, I we, came to yeah. Mount Sinai because Andre right. called me up and said, "We need you at Mount Sinai. Yeah. Nobody's really doing this at Mount yeah. Sinai." So that's yeah. how I ended up on the faculty at Mount Sinai while I was still at NYU. Right, and then I eventually transitioned to full time voluntary faculty at Mount Sinai. Right. I think Charlie got me involved in one of my, well, it, Charlie gave me my first writing assignment to do uh -huh. something for one of the Bellevue journals, uh -huh. sort of an in-house journal. And then uh, I got on a research project with Menjean Lee, mm -hmm, sure. who's now heading up MFM at University of Hawaii. Right. So I've been connected with your group right. from <laughs> from 1996. It's been it's, yeah, a that's... long and productive collaboration. And just so everyone understands, our, our listeners, the idea of there is there's two concepts with mental health or you know, and women who are either pregnant or thinking getting pregnant. There's one, you know, just understanding the disease process and what's going to happen in pregnancy, when are they going to get better, when are they going to get worse, and how they get treated. But then the medication piece, which is just huge because so many women are treated with medications if they're not pregnant, which is sort of the mainstay of, not the mainstay, but it's a huge part of psychiatry and they're getting pregnant. And like you said, in the past, people would just tell them, well, you know, go off your meds because they're going to harm the baby. And that was the prevailing thought. And then it was just a disaster for them. It was. That was a recommendation based on very limited evidence. Right. So as I like to explain to patients, when you come to me or to your internist right. with a sore throat. The doctor has the ability to take a throat culture to check what kind of bacteria is growing in your throat and then figure out what kind of medication is going to kill that bacteria. So if you have strep, could be penicillin, it could be amoxicillin, could be any one of 10 different antibiotics. But there's a way to decide in the laboratory what's wrong and how do we treat it. Right. And that those decisions about how to use antibiotics are based on trials with tens of thousands of people, not just looking at the efficacy of the drug, but also the dosing of the drug and the duration of treatment. So in psychiatry, we do not have that kind of information available, especially where perinatal psychiatry is concerned. So people would base their recommendations on single case or small case series experience which really isn't very good. One person can have an adverse reaction to almost anything. Right. statistically likely. Right. Even if it's rare, rare things happen rarely. But to be able to really assess the safety of drugs, you need a very, very big clinical trial. We didn't have that. So instead of acknowledging that we didn't have a lot of data, the default mode was just stop taking your medicine. We were talking before about a phrase that physicians often use, OBGYNs have used this a lot, stay on your medication 
if you really need it. In the absence of large-scale clinical trials, doctors often rely on their quote-unquote gut. Mm -hmm. And clinical gut is useful in driving you to seek out more information, but it's not always useful in making clinical recommendations because as the information changes, your clinical gut may not have changed (laughs) unless you re-educated yourself. When a woman takes a medication, she may not be in a position to decide whether she actually needs it. It has to be a collaborative decision made between the treating physician and the patient and whatever other physicians are involved. And it can sometimes be very subtle. I don't have a test like a throat culture to say, hey, this is what's wrong with you. This is the treatment you need for it. It's a lot fuzzier right. when it comes to psychiatry. Right. You know, there's unfortunately more art than science involved right. in the selection of medication for patients. One thing I can tell you is if you find something that works and the patient can tolerate it, right. going off it is not always a good idea. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it's so hard because also there's so much overlap, you know, like you said, with diagnosis. You know, for example, you can have the diagnosis of depression, you know, which is there are criteria and this and but someone could also be depressed, right? And you could be depressed because you lost a loved one. Now, it doesn't mean you have clinical depression and need medication necessarily because that's something that should be temporary and go away in a few weeks. But if you have a major depression, you have, you know, mental illness, that's not just going to go away. And I think a lot of times doctors and not just doctors, but we're talking about doctors here, you know, get it wrong and they think that someone has depression, it just means they're sad and they'll be better in a couple of weeks or they'll be happier because they're pregnant. But like, no, they have disease. Like you wouldn't say that about someone who has diabetes, like because you're pregnant, you know, you don't take your insulin anymore. It doesn't work like that. But for mental health, and some of it is just our culture, our society, some of it's medical training, some of it's just, it's hard. But I think we've had a really, we've gotten a lot better, but there was a lot of poor understanding of all this. I think one way to get around that problem is to change the terminology from mental illness Mm -hmm. to neurobiological disorder. Okay. Which really makes the point that this is a brain-based condition. Right. And it has nothing to do with your moral fiber. Right. Or your inherent resilience or character or your your strength as a person. It can happen to really successful people. It can happen to people who were never successful. It happens to poor people. It happens to rich people. But it's a, it's a real biological condition. And it may sound a little facetious, but I'll say it anyway. Mm-hmm. If I take out your brain, you're cured. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Works every time. Right. There are some people who function quite well without a brain. But I, I remember when I started in practice, the one of the first patients I saw was a woman who had horrific depression. I mean, she was, she was nearly catatonic. She would come into the office. She, she couldn't lift her head up. She could not smile. She couldn't carry conversation. The patient herself was in her forties. Her mother who was in her mid seventies would bring her in. And it was, it was horrifying to see. I mean, just, I, I don't know if I'd ever seen someone who wasn't in the hospital look like that. And ultimately she, she did get through the pregnancy and she delivered and about two months later, she came for a postpartum visit. I literally did not recognize her. She was, she's apparently, right? She's a partner to law firm. She's highly successful. She has like several graduate degrees. She is funny. She's outgoing. And it just difference is finally they got the right treatment and they realized who she was. And if you had met her originally, you would never know any of these things. And like you said, it's, it's a real disease that could happen 
to anybody. I wouldn't say that any time, you know, it doesn't like just come out of nowhere, but it it's it can happen to anybody. It can. That's the bad news. The good yeah. news is we do have treatment available. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes as a, a psychiatrist, I'll say to patients, you know, if I get it right the first time, I'm a genius. Right. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes there's a real trial and error process. I spoke with somebody this morning who's going to see me for a pre-pregnancy consultation, somebody who had a history of substance abuse and anxiety and depression and is finally feeling better, ready to have a baby. So she wants to know about the safety of the medication in pregnancy. And I said, by the way, are you using any form of contraception? And she said, no. I said, well, I can see you in three weeks. Maybe you could use some contraception till I see you then. And here's the point I'm trying to make, because it's a lot easier to have the discussion about what's safe in pregnancy, what's the best treatment for you and your family before you're pregnant. Right. Once you're pregnant, it's a whole different ballgame. Right. When women get pregnant, they are kind of a moving target. Their hormone levels are changing on an hourly basis, let alone a daily basis. And that can have an effect on the brain because estrogen and progesterone are neuroactive steroids. They're not just about sex. Right. Although sex starts in the brain. (laughs) (laughs) It's all there. It's all there. It's all in the brain. That's a, you know, a good example of why it's so complicated. Right. First, finding out what's wrong. Second, finding out a treatment. And thirdly, what's the reproductive safety data? And fourthly, if you're already pregnant, then I don't want to tinker with too much right. because I may not be able to get you stable right. again. I think also people overestimate the risks. They assume these medications are going to be much more dangerous than they actually are. And I know that one of the hats you wear is helping this reproductive toxicology center, which is essentially a group that looks at you know the, the potential harmful effects of medications in pregnancy, and you are specifically related to the the world of you know psychiatric medications. And I mean, they have a great website, reprotox.org, which is I mean, we use it all the time to get up to date data. So, and this is part of your expertise. But how would you explain to our listeners why is it so hard to do a study? Like you know, just let's take a simple, not simple, but medications used all the time. Let's say Prozac, right? Why do we not really know? for sure. What is the risk of Prozac in pregnancy? I'm happy to say that we have a really good idea about what the risks are now. Right. But the reason we don't have the kind of data we'd really like, which is live studies in live patients, as opposed to studies using healthcare databases, is that pregnant women are routinely excluded from pharmacology trials, whether it's antibiotics, chemotherapy agents, or or treatment of uh, neurobiologic disorders like generalized anxiety disorder, major depression, and bipolar disorder. So there's actually legislation that was passed recently that mandates the development of research protocols, which will include pregnant women. Obviously, the problem with having a pregnant woman in a trial with something you don't understand terribly well is you don't want to expose the baby to an unknown risk. But there are ways to mitigate the risk in in terms of how the studies are done. So eventually, we'll have more more data. Now, what we have on Prozac, the generic of which is fluoxetine and similar drugs, is we have healthcare databases collected from around the world where pregnancy outcome is 
is correlated with medication exposure based on prescriptions filled. Right. So we don't have this in the United States, except in certain systems like the Medicaid system, where you can really track prescriptions and clinical outcomes. But in the Scandinavian countries, for example, and in Canada, there are large, you basically have, you're tracked from cradle to grave with an ID number and everything that is done is fed into a computer one way or another. And eventually you can look at a given individual's clinical history, and the prescriptions they filled. Now, here's the problem. If somebody filled a prescription, it doesn't mean they took the drug. Right. Nor does it mean they took the drug the way it was prescribed. Right. And it doesn't tell you what else they took. Exactly. That was not prescribed. Specifically, we worry about drugs, tobacco, and alcohol. Turns out that amphetamines, like methamphetamine, may have some effects on brain development, but it's not hugely teratogenic. But cigarettes are really bad for babies. Alcohol is really bad for babies. And even in assessing the dangers of methamphetamine abuse in terms of do they cause, does it cause birth defects? You have, you can't really adequately control for exposure to cigarettes, to tobacco and to alcohol. And alcohol is a known teratogen. Right. So it's all very complicated. Right. Anyway, that's, but we have a lot of data. We have hundreds of thousands of exposures to fluoxetine or Prozac, as well as the other serotonergic antidepressants like paroxetine and sertraline, which are Paxil and Zoloft, other drugs like venlafaxine, which is Effexor and and things like that. There is one drug for anybody who's listening, there is one drug that should be avoided in pregnancy if at all possible, and that is valproic acid, which is also known as Depakote. So this is a drug used to treat epilepsy and to treat bipolar disorder. I always recommend if a patient is taking that drug, they be on some really reliable form of contraception like an IUD to prevent unintended pregnancy. Now, risk tolerance is is very much dependent on context. So if you talk to a neurologist who has a patient that has really bad epilepsy and could die from it, and valproic acid is the only drug that is effective in controlling the epilepsy, then the neurologist might say, well, 90% of the babies are okay. It's a one in 10 chance, 10% that there would be a problem. So if that's if you want to have a baby while you're on this medicine, those are the risks. Right. A psychiatrist will say, well, 10% of the babies could be affected. Right. We don't recommend you take that. <laughs> Instead, I'd rather you take a drug like lithium or perhaps quetiapine right. or one of the other drugs that's used as a mood stabilizing agent because right. the risks are much lower right. with those drugs. So it all depends on perspective. Yeah, no, it depends. Also, it's individualized, which is why, you know, it's hard to say that this medication is good, this medication is bad or whatever. I mean, there are some medications, you know, that are sort of, and these are the exceptions that have a really high risk uh, to the babies. I mean, you're mentioning, you know, valproic acid, which is like the worst one, and it's still the risk is five to 10%, right? So right. that's, we consider that very, very high. But like you said, that means that 90 to 95% of the time, everything's fine. I mean, there are a few medications where it's more like 25%, but that's not really related to, you know, psychiatry or anything. Those are, there are medications that are bad, but not in sort of the world we live in. So we're talking, and most of the medications we're talking about, and what I tell patients is the kind of risk we're referring to here is 1%, you know, like some number under 2% or even less or this, those are sort of the, the numbers thrown about potentially 
And so it, it's it's important because I think people think it's a hundred percent when they take these medications. So I I came up with a slide about five years ago that I I really really like. <laughs> <laughs> it's the simplest slide I ever made, but I think it's the best. And I I came up with the slide when I was speaking to a panel of FDA experts and representatives from pharmaceutical companies to discuss the new FDA labeling, the new pregnancy categories. Mm -hmm. So my job was to explain why this mattered. This is not some esoteric academic or and or legal discussion. There are real people at the end of these regulations, so you need to be aware of that. The slide I came up with was this. It said, or I wrote, one in a million equals one in a hundred thousand equals one in a thousand equals one in a hundred, equals one in 10, equals one in one, equals me. Right. And that's how anxious physicians and anxious patients perceive the risk-benefit analysis. Right. Now, as I have said to you in the past, rare things happen rarely. So you could take a medication and you could have an adverse outcome. And that adverse outcome may be one in 40,000, but you could be that one. The chances of you being one in 40,000 are actually one in 40,000, right. which is a pretty low risk. Right. But the background risk of birth defects in the United States yep. is three to 5%. This right. is why MFM exists as a specialty. <laughs> right. Because you, you're, you know, when, when I delivered my kids, low those many years ago, <laughs> there were no MFM specialists mm -hmm. as a subspecialty of OBGYN. Good OBGYNs did a lot of MFM. Right counseling, Correct. whether it was the first ones to have ultrasounds, do amniocentesis, genetic counseling. And as the, the amount of knowledge has increased, the need for a specialist has increased, kind of like in my field. There you have it. If you understand that the background risk of birth defects is three to 5%, and maybe a medication is associated with a one in a thousand mm. chance of something happening, what you see is that the background risks of problems with the pregnancy are much greater than any yeah. potential risk from medication. Absolutely. Now, as I said, that one in a thousand figure, I can't even think of a medication in psychiatry other than valproic acid right. where there's an increased risk of anything bad happening in terms of birth defects. Right. Not when you look at the studies really carefully. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's, that's the key. Right. Anybody can write anything, but it's the methodology and it's the way the data is analyzed that makes the difference. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I tell people is sort of what you're saying before. The only way to know for sure if a medication causes birth defects, and these studies aren't done for obvious reasons, is you take 20,000 women, randomly divide them into two groups, give 10,000 the medication and 10,000 something that looks just like it, and no, you know, but doesn't have the medication. From the start, that's not going to get done. You're never going to get numbers like that. You're not going to get people to sign up to take a medication or not take a medication. Plus, what dose do you give? You know, all these things. Okay. But if you did that, then you would also, after birth, have to do a full head-to-toe exam and scan and ultrasound and MRI or whatever it is on all 20,000 babies, count the number of birth defects, and if it's really more in one group with the medication, that's your difference. Okay, so that's not being done. It's not done. So what they do is they go back and they look at the 10,000 women who took the medication, they compare them to 10,000 who didn't, and they look at the difference in birth defects, which is a problem for two reasons. Number one, they're different, right? The women who took it, as you said, may be more likely to be drinking alcohol or smoking, or maybe they're older, or maybe they have medical problems or whatever. Maybe their prenatal care isn't as good. There's a lot of reasons things can happen. 
And the second thing is their babies get tested more. So they get diagnosed more. And so what I tell women when we, when they, when either I show them a study or they pull a study or we discuss the studies, I say, look, this study showed an increased risk of like 1%. I say, that's like the maximum. And it, it's probably something much lower than that and maybe zero. It's hard to say for sure. And I'd say, okay, like maybe there's some risk, but going off it has risk. And it's probably greater if she needs the medication to go off to go off the medicine. And what ends up happening is most people, when they sort of realize what we're talking about here and you know, the the likelihood of a problem happening might be higher just from her taking the subway to my office. And so it's generally they're pretty reassured under that circumstance that it's it's if I'm not so worried, they shouldn't be so worried. Well, I, I like the way you explained it. I'd say you ticked all the boxes. There's a concept called confounding by indication, right? which means that the reason the person took the drug may account right. for the adverse outcomes. Right. So it's not the drug. That's coincidental. Right. It's the illness. It's like saying insulin is related to birth defects. No, insulin isn't. Diabetes is. Diabetes is, right. especially <laughs> if it's not well controlled. Right. Right. So it's challenging. I, I would agree with you, though, that when it's explained carefully to yeah. women who are contemplating pregnancy or or are already pregnant, patients get it. Now, you mentioned reprotox.org, which mm-hmm. is I'm very proud to be associated with it. And kind of keeps me on my toes because we're constantly reviewing the world's literature in both humans and animals to see if there are indications for problems related both to pharmacologic agents like antibiotics, antihypertensives, antidepressants, and to other exposures like jet fuel or anesthesia for dental procedures. But we have another website that the contributors at Reprotox also contribute to an organization called mothertobaby.org. Right. So Mother to Baby is produced by the Organization for Teratogen Information Specialists. So these are the genetic counselors that you can call up. There are many 800 numbers. I, hey, I had a, I had a dental x-ray. Is my baby going to have a birth defect? You right. can call various hotlines and you'll get to mothertobaby.org. We produce fact sheets that are aimed at the general public. So it's kind of a, a simplified version of what you might see in Reprotox, but we've really boiled it down to the essential points. And we have, let's say, six or seven or maybe 10 references maximum on that fact sheet, which you can print out, compared to 100 references in Reprotox. It's a great resource for patients. It's highly refereed. And I would say it's basically accurate and it's it's something you can take to your doctor and say, hey, I read about this. Do you know more about this? Where can I find more information? Right. And there's nothing like a patient showing up in your office with an article in hand to get you to <laughs> get you to do your due diligence as a physician, right? It is, it is it's, yeah, it's a good, and listen, it, there's, there's nothing better than an informed patient because then you're having a high level discussion and you're really talking about what matters and not trying to sort of like diffuse all of the erroneous, you know, things that are coming out left and right is someone's really understands what's going on and has a good sense. Like that's a great conversation because then we can come to a decision about what she wants to do and what I think is, you know, the option right or wrong. I mean, it's just a much better way to go. And it's that kind of information, certainly a lot better than like, oh yeah, I saw on Google something once somewhere. 
You know? I saw a great <laughs> coffee mug. It said, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Yeah, I actually had that in my office. It was, a, it was given to me as a gift. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of women, hopefully before they're pregnant, who are, you know, have for whatever reason around several medications, you know, one, two, three medications. In your experience, when they're talking about pregnancy, are most of them trying to get off their medications to get pregnant or most of them trying to look for reassurance that it's okay to stay on? I mean, where are they in this process? Well, I get I get both. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said before quickly. You know how I said you ticked off all the boxes in uh-huh. discussing the literature? Right. I would say the OBGYNs have moved much further than the psychiatrists in understanding the risks of untreated illness and pregnancy. Yeah, well, we, we have to take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're getting the calls at two yeah. in the morning from the highly anxious patient or the right. one with obsessive compulsive disorder right. or severe depression. I'm really pleased that that has happened, that OB has led the charge for acceptance of safe treatments within pregnancy. Psychiatrists who tend to be anxious as a group to begin with (laughs) are still kind of hesitant. And I still have patients calling me up and saying, my doctor said I have to go off my medicine. I'm worried about doing that. I feel so much better on my medicine. Well, like I said before, I never argue with somebody who tells me the medicine is working. Right. Unless it's valproic acid. Right. But in which case I'm like, let's see if we can find an alternative that works. You know, I get both. I get patients who are desperately afraid of being on anything. Mm -hmm. These are the same people who will not have a Diet Coke during pregnancy. They won't have a cup of coffee. Right. They may have wine because they think that's good for (laughs) anxiety, but wine is not good in pregnancy. Not good. Sorry, but I have to disagree on that one. Uh, they're the ones who, if you say, well, there's a one in 40,000 chance, right? they're like, oh, that's me. And then I have the other ones who really know how that medicine has helped them. And they may not even be able to articulate the ways in which it's helped them, but they know they feel better. Right. And so they're the ones who want permission to stay on medication. Now, I had an interesting situation arise once when I saw a woman who was postpartum or maybe maybe she was just at the end of her pregnancy, came to me on medication, doing very well, had been treated for anxiety and depression. And she said to me, my husband wants me to breastfeed, but I can't breastfeed. I'm taking sertraline, which is Zoloft. I looked at her and I thought- There are several odd parts about that statement. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to breastfeed because my husband wants me to. Go on, (laughs) go on. That's like, okay. Okay, and what else? I I can't imagine that happening in my marriage. I don't don't (laughs) know where that comes out. And the other other thing, but I can't. That sort of statement of fact, I can't do it because I'm I'm nursing. It's dangerous for the baby. And like, it's like two wrong facts. And when we did the, you know, the in-depth consultation, it was clear that she felt so much better on medication and was worried she'd be very depressed and even suicidal if she went off medication. Yeah. And it's worse postpartum. That's her highest risk and time. And that would be a very high risk time. And I, uh, you know, the conclusion was, don't impugn the medicine. The medicine is not the problem here. Right. Your husband deciding whether you should or should not <laughs> breastfeed is the problem. You don't. Any want... husbands listening right now are probably like, I wouldn't be able to say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wonder how long that would last. Yeah. Right. I said the the issue is really you need to own up to the fact that you just don't want to breastfeed. Right. For a whole variety of reasons. Sometimes right. breastfeeding works great for people and they really love it, and other times it just doesn't work for them. Right. And that's okay. That's right. why we have formula. It was an interesting discussion. Yeah. But the issue is not the medication. In fact, the exposure during pregnancy 
is much higher than the exposure through breastfeeding. Right. Oh, absolutely. To the baby. Correct. To the baby. Yes. Right. So when you take a medicine when you're pregnant, the baby sees exactly the same amount of medicine almost as the mother does. But the mother metabolizes the drug for the baby. So the mother clears the the medicine from the baby's bloodstream and the baby's brain. And in the nursing baby... Uh, let's say less than less than ten percent of the mother's dose gets into the baby. Right, Sometimes fraction. even less than that one yeah. percent. And after six weeks of age, the baby's liver is like an adult liver, and right. it clears out the drug rapidly. And even in those six weeks, the exposure is is still that one nanogram per mL at less than ten percent of the mother's exposure. And yeah. and there so far there's no damage done from even that small amount of right. exposure. It's what you said before also so interesting about OBs or MFMs and psychiatrists. I mean I've had this I mean countless times where I'm meeting with a patient and she tells me your hit and I ask her about a medical history and asked her, she says, I have a history of, you know, of anxiety and depression and you know, I was told I have OCD and I was on this medication, that medication, I was hospitalized, you know, three times as a teen. And she goes through and says, okay. And I say, you know, how are you doing? She goes, well, I'm doing okay, but my psychiatrist thinks I should do this and this and this. Many of the times it's stopping a medication. And I'll be like, I disagree. <laughs> I'll be like, uh, you're like, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I don't think that's a very good idea. And she's like, why? I said, well, what do you like when you're off your medication? She's like, well, I haven't been off like three, four years. Like, what were you like? She's like, oh, I was a wreck. I couldn't function. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I was, I was like, well, that's not good for pregnancy. I said, that's a, you know, we don't want you in that place. Uh, It's just not, A, it's not good for you. I don't want her to suffer. I so, but it's not good for the entire pregnancy. And I'll say, you know what? Let me call your psychiatrist. And frequently, because I was a psychiatrist, they, they want to do well by their patients. They're, they're, you know, they're good, caring people. And I'll say, listen, this is what I do. I am comfortable with her being on these medicines. I'm okay with the risk. I'm going to scan the baby. I'll, you know, I'm okay. And they'll be like, well, if you're okay, I think it's great. And then it usually just happens. And I don't, it's, it's odd. I don't really know why. I don't, maybe they don't follow up the psychiatrist in pregnancy when they say, I'm, I'm not sure why it, it's sort of been that why you, you know, notice that. I think there's a problem in psychiatry that many psychiatrists have not been trained well in collaborative care. So I told you when I was at Bellevue as a medical student and resident, I did a lot of medical psychiatry, a lot of consultation liaison psychiatry. That means going in to see patients who had other medical conditions and treating their psychiatric condition, neurobiologic condition, in the context of their medical illness, whether it was heart disease, lung disease, infectious disease, cancer, or fractures and trauma. Right. So there are a lot of psychiatrists who once they leave training, don't speak to other doctors. Right. Would you ever refer a patient to a cardiologist without calling that doctor first? Right. I mean, you wouldn't, right? Right. You would pick up the phone. Hey, I want you to see this patient of mine. I'm concerned about a heart murmur. And psychiatrists don't always do that. Right. Now, I'm happy to say that in in more recent training, there's been an emphasis on collaborative care. So I'm hoping the field will improve in that way. But you're talking about doctors who didn't think to pick up the phone and call the OB to discuss it. And with a lot of things in medicine, as long as the risk is shared, the medical liability, the malpractice liability Mm -hmm. is shared with other providers, then they're fine. If they think if there's an adverse outcome, they're the, they're on the hook for it. I think right. it, it sends people off to the moon. 
Yeah. I mean, do, do you think it's an issue of people are afraid from a liability perspective that they're like, well, it's probably okay, but I don't want to be blamed for anything? Or is it that they honestly believe it's the wrong thing to be on this medicine in pregnancy? Well, I, think, I think you see both. You know, I think it's, it's hard to separate the two. But I'm curious to hear you say, since you articulated the analysis of the literature so, so beautifully, I'm curious to hear you say what, what you tell patients right. about the risks associated with depression and anxiety in pregnancy. They're huge. So I tell people in general, there's things we know and things we don't know, right? I said, things we don't know is probably huge, right? In terms of how much your, your brain activity and behavior and how things are functioning affect your overall health. I mean, a lot of people suggest that and suspect that and have some studies to show it and believe it. And there is definitely this concept. And so people will buy that, but I think it's real. And I mean, there is some data about stress and anxiety and pregnancy causing adverse outcomes, but I said, it's going to affect your nutrition. It's going to affect your ability to exercise. It's going to affect your ability to make good decisions. In significant cases, people could have, you know, self-harm. I mean, you can, it can get dangerous to certain, for certain people. And I said, the other thing is you're also going to feel miserable. There's no goal to feel miserable in pregnancy. And I said, it's going to be worse after you deliver. Now you're going to have to do this with a baby, your life stressors. It's, you can't sleep right. And there's so many things that are just not going to go well. And so, and most people, they know that. I think you know, most women, I would say that, you know, the most interesting thing for me is, as I've gone through medicine, I would say that the under, not the understanding of the biology, but just the understanding of people who struggle with neurobiologic disorders or, you know, also called, you know, mental health. I just understand it better. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's empathy. It sounds like so much empathy. Like I feel bad for someone. It's, I just sort of get them a little bit more. And, you know, when, when you're younger and you're training and you see someone who comes into your office or to the hospital and she's got OCD and anxiety. And the first thing you think is, Oh God, like this is going to be so hard. She's going to ask a thousand questions. Is she's going to be so nervous. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to, yeah. Listen, if I see someone with very bad hypertension, it's also going to be hard, but I don't like complain about it. You know, you say, yeah, she has anxiety. So you'll have to explain it again and you'll have to be calm and you'll have to reassure her and you'll have to take her phone calls. And that's just part of it. And I've just, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm older. Maybe it's because I see more people or in general in society, I think we're just better at understanding these things and recognizing that they're real, like you said, biologic conditions and not, you know, a judge on someone's character. And so I've been much more comfortable over the years taking care of women who have on multiple medications and multiple complications from neurobiologic disorders than I was when I started, for sure. What comes with experience also as an OB is understanding that the better treated the underlying disorder is, the easier it is to manage the patient. Sure. And the more likely she is to follow your recommendations. In severely ill women, we definitely see that they don't keep their prenatal appointments regularly. Mm-hmm. They're not as likely to follow dietary recommendations. So if you have a patient with gestational diabetes, she really needs to follow a strict diet or she's going to end up on insulin. And if she still doesn't follow a strict diet, she's going to have poor glucose control anyway. Same with high blood pressure. Same with women who have to be on bed rest. 
If you're nervous and fidgety and depressed, it's very hard to comply with all of that. Right. We wouldn't prescribe bed rest anymore. That's out. So no worries. Oh, no, there's no more bed rest? Bed rest is out. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. I see. This is why it's fun I would to actually, do. It would be the opposite. I would be concerned that since she's suffering, let's say it's depression, she's going to end up in bed all day. And I would say that's bad. So now that you want, what, 150 (laughs) minutes of cardiovascular exercise of moderate intensity a week? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Is that current? Oh, uh, 150 a week. It's uh, give or take, something like that. Yeah, Yeah, it's give or take. Depends on who you read. But some were like that. It should be. Yeah. And women can't do that if they're, you know, or or maybe they are going to start turning to get treated in other ways. Right. Alcohol. Well, it's great. You know, yeah. Medication. I mean, I've always said their drugs work better than my drugs. Right. That's why, you know, it's very interesting. There's a drug called haloperidol, Mm -hmm. which is an antipsychotic drug. If you have really severe psychotic symptoms, like hearing voices and having visions, haloperidol was a game changer for many people, but it has a really serious side effect profile. The only time it was abused on the street Mm -hmm. was during the crack cocaine epidemic, when people would get really psychotic. And so- dealers had Haldol with them. Okay. <laughs> it's good for business. It's good for business. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, when people are depressed and miserable, they self-medicate. Right. And sometimes they self-medicate with prescription drugs, like sure. pres- prescription narcotics. Right. And I think your audience for the podcast is probably pretty educated, listens to podcasts and, you know, but there are lots of people who don't have access to really top drawer medical care around right. the country. There are people who have illnesses that are so severe, they they could barely listen to a podcast and concentrate on it. Right. And everything we've said today is that much worse for the group of patients who have those challenges. Right. So l- let me ask you a question. So you're, you're here, you have an, an audience, people are listening. What is it you would want someone to know who has a diagnosis or has a symptom, is on a medication or isn't on a medication, and she is thinking about her future, about having a family, about having kids? What are the things you wish you could say to everybody before that happens? I think I would start with happy mommies make for happy babies. Better you are feeling emotionally, the better the outcome will be, no matter what challenges you have to face. So some women will have to face difficulties getting pregnant and they may go through infertility treatments, which I guess have been renamed as fertility treatments. Right. It definitely right? look at the positive side. Look at the positive yeah. spin. <laughs> they may have to deal with that challenge. There is, of course, a risk of pregnancy loss in every pregnancy. And if you're not in good shape to begin with, it's going to be that much harder yeah. to deal with a pregnancy loss, whether it's an early miscarriage right. or a stillbirth, which right. about one in 200 among Caucasian women and one in 100 among Black women in the United States. So it's really quite a significant. Did right. I get the numbers right? Yes. I mean, they're very close. Depends on your definitions of all these things. Well, but basically, let's say loss of a baby after yeah, 28 yeah. weeks. And give or take. It's a little bit less after 28 weeks. That's after oh. 20 weeks, I think. Oh, but either way, it's still it's still devastating. It's still yeah. it's still not nothing. Oh no, it's 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 higher than people think. You know, it's like it ain't over till it's over. So right. you gotta be in good shape to go through right. a pregnancy. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I see women, and we've been discussing women who have an identified psychiatric problem before pregnancy, whether it's treated or not treated. We both see a lot of patients like that. But there are also women who were just fine until they got pregnant. Right. And then- That's the stressor. That's, yeah. 
And that is the the straw that breaks the camel's back. And that's when they develop a psychiatric disorder, a neurobiologic disorder. And so we see those. And then there are women who are just fine through pregnancy and it's postpartum where they have the very first onset of any sort of psychiatric illness. I always start out by discussing the woman who's already treated as kind of the easy way to demonstrate what we're looking at. But not everybody knows they had a psychiatric problem that was lurking in the background. Right. That's fair. And it's really shocking to people when they get pregnant and they expect to be happy, but they're not. Right. And one of the risks you didn't mention about depression and pregnancy is not feeling connected to the baby. Yeah. Otherwise known as not bonding to the baby. Right. So bonding begins when the woman realizes she's pregnant. That's the start of the bonding process. Now, not everybody feels bonded right away, but have you ever seen a couple where the woman's say eight weeks pregnant and miscarries and it's the husband who gets depressed or the partner? Yeah. I mean, I see, unfortunately, we see a lot of miscarriage. We see a lot of pregnancy, see a lot of miscarriage. And you know, I've unfortunately had to break the news to people because it, it was diagnosed by ultrasound and and you see everything. You see a couple where both of them literally collapse onto the floor. They're inconsolable for two hours and they can't be spoken to. Then you see one but not the other. You sometimes see anger fighting with each other. You sometimes see people like literally say, okay. And you're like, and that and all of them are that everyone's response is unique. Right. There isn't, you know, a good or a bad response as people respond differently. But yeah, we've seen I definitely have seen situations where the where the woman in the relationship is okay with it, but she's coping very well and, and the you know, her partner is the husband, whoever is is just distraught and yeah. devastated. And yeah. sometimes it's it's that she has not she may not have been bonded to the pregnancy or right. heavily invested in it because some people don't feel attached to the baby until they can feel the baby move, which can be you know, 15, 16 weeks, and for some people, not until 20 weeks, and they're various. And again, right. I, I, you know, I'll let you right. give the more detailed talk on that one. So sometimes they didn't feel so bonded. Right. But the partner was intensely invested in the pregnancy right. from the moment of conception. And it's it's really interesting when you see that. It's not necessarily a bad thing if the woman is is accepting of the miscar- the right. early miscarriage. I mean, right. she may just be realistic about right. the about the numbers. But it's really interesting. Now, the problem is if you don't feel connected to the baby during the pregnancy, it's that much harder to feel connected to the baby when you have the baby in your arms. Right. And that's when we really need the mother to feel bonded. Why? Not just because it's nice and cute and it's like a Hallmark card. No. If you don't feel bonded to the baby, it's much harder to take care of that baby. Sure. I mean, babies are 24-7. Right. It's gruesome. I mean, after I, I will tell you, after I had a baby, I was like, oh, I could have been an intern on an internal medicine for yeah. a full year. No problem. That was easy. Right. Who knew? Who knew I could not sleep for this long? And yeah. And still, you know, have and still function at some level. But it's important to feel connected to the baby. The demands are intense and you need to ha- you need to be invested in that child in a way that makes it all worthwhile. Right. That you're going to stay up that extra hour, that you're going to get out of bed and feed the baby when the baby is crying, that you're going to console the baby and take good care of it. In extreme cases, you can, you know, women who are very depressed can neglect the baby. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's, it's, it's problematic. Sad. And now, now there's, there's also, I mean, like you said, everybody's individual and how they respond right. to good news, to bad news. In the same way, you can also have somebody who's severely depressed 
who takes exquisite care of the baby, right. but feels no emotional connection to the baby. But they feel compelled to perform in spite of how they feel inside. And that, you know, obviously that's better than the person who neglects the baby completely, but not having that emotional bond with the baby can have an impact on the child's development. Sure. Because when a child develops their their emotional brain, it requires a dynamic interaction between the mother or the primary caregiver and right. that and that baby. And it's interesting because also a lot of the data on nursing is that the benefits are are probably more related to the actual bonding, holding, caressing than to the actual breast milk, which is fascinating. It's really, it, again, there's probably benefits to both, but it seems like the bulk of it based on the research is not bottle versus breast. It's holding the baby on a regular interval, you know, and having that touch, that skin to skin touch versus not. And it's, it's, and it's for the baby's health we're talking about. It's good for the mother too, but we're talking about the baby. And I find that if I ha have a mom who's very anxious, who's very uncomfortable with nursing because the baby right. latches, but it hurts her nipples right. or she's got mastitis or the, the schedule disruptions are just, and the sleep deprivation just make her crazed. In that case, bottle feeding is better. It's less stressful for the right. mother. She can hold the baby, caress the baby, rock the baby, right. feed the baby without having to deal with the complications that she has with breastfeeding. Right. You know, we kind of have hinted at it without saying it specifically, but there's such a stigma against psychiatric illness in our society, even though it's better than when right. I started doing this work. Right. It's less of a stigma, it's but it's less, a stigma. But it's still pretty stigmatized. There's still tremendous pressure for women to breastfeed, that they're bad moms right. if they don't. And not everybody can breastfeed it's, for a whole I, host of reasons. I, yeah, that's that's I can go hours and hours on this. It's a problem that we're we're still stigmatizing women and men, you know, anyone who has these these challenges, these illnesses, whatever it is. And if I could speak to anyone who's not yet pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, address this before you get pregnant. Meet with your psychiatrist and say, hey, what's gonna be my plan? if and when I get pregnant. And you don't have to have a date of when I'm going to, but just I'm curious, what would be your plan? And if the psychiatrist says, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and it sounds really reasonable, and it, great, you have a plan. Meet with an obstetrician, meet with a maternal fetal medicine doctor, whoever, say, what would you recommend? And if you're getting answers that sound really off to you, get another opinion. Meet with a reproductive psychiatrist. I mean, not everyone needs to meet with a reproductive psychiatrist if everyone's doing the right thing, but many do. And Get as much information as you can on the front end so that when you are pregnant, you have a plan in place and it's the right plan for you. And I think that what happens, a lot of people just sort of, you know, they just wing it. And then they're trying to work this all out in the first trimester when they're nauseous and they're tired and they may be bleeding. They're going to visits and it's really stressful. And then it compounds the problem. And so advanced planning is great. And you don't have to have a date of conception in mind. It could be 10 years down the road just to make sure it's, it's sort of, you know, it's going to be addressed. You asked me before, what do I want people to know? Yeah. And I didn't really answer that other than happy mommy makes happy baby. It's enough. <laughs> As, which, is, which is the key. But if you can plan beforehand, that's great. Right. I tell psychiatrists that they should be planning yes. in advance yes. whenever they're treating a female patient with a functioning uterus. Right. So if you're a child psychiatrist treating a 10-year-old and you're right. putting that 10-year-old, let's say, on it a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, i.e. SSRI, right. for panic disorder, you got to be thinking, what's going to happen when that girl gets pregnant? 50% of 14-year-olds in the United States have had- Oh, don't, don't finish that sentence because my daughter turned 14 yesterday. 
<laughs> You're not going to say 50% get pregnant, are you? Okay. No, I'm going to oh. say 15% of had sex. <laughs> All right, whatever. Sex, <laughs> we can talk about that later. But Yeah, no glove, no love, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Like, yeah. I was like, I was like, I don't think 50% of 14 year olds get pregnant. I'm not ready for that. No, but we do have one of the highest rates of teen pregnancies in the developed world. A few years ago, we were second only to Belarus. <laughs> What's going on in Belarus? All right. <laughs> well, you know, wow. Belarus is another one of those countries that doesn't have coronavirus. Right. So, um, so I tell psychiatrists, you should be making your medication change choices in anticipation that this patient will get pregnant. Right. As a psychiatrist, you should be tracking when does she get her period, what right. form of contraception is she using, so that you can act early if the patient does get pregnant. If you're a psychiatrist treating a female patient, don't put her on valproic acid right. because she will get pregnant. That's what I tell the doctors. For the patients, yes, just what you said. Ask the questions early and often, like right. voting in Chicago. <laughs> that's where I'm from. Yeah, that's how we vote. Early yeah. and often. <laughs> Ask those questions early, get, arm yourself with knowledge when you can. And the, the the next part of that is don't ask, don't tell doesn't work. If you don't feel good, you should tell somebody. Right. Tell your OB, tell your primary care provider. Certainly if you already have a psychiatrist right. or a healthcare, a mental health provider that you're working with, tell them. And don't take no for an answer. Right. If somebody says, well, we can't do anything about that, tough it out, that's not the case. Yeah. And there's information available. Another organization women should know about is called Postpartum Support International. And that's a, a very good peer support organization that provides some educational materials for for patients and their partners. So that's a good source of information. You presented a case where a patient said, should I take this medicine or not? And you said, well, let me call your psychiatrist. Right. Well, encourage the, your psychiatrist to yeah. call your OB. Yeah. And the same goes for somebody working with a reproductive endocrinologist. Get the doctors to talk to each other. Absolutely. And I, I like to say to my patients, the answer to all questions is call Dr. Luskin. <laughs> and I was like, let's keep it simple. Yeah. If they ask you a question about your medications, tell them to call me and right. we'll have a doctor to doctor discussion about it and doctor to healthcare provider yeah. discussion about it. And then we can then you can participate in collaborative decision making. And what collaborative decision making means is the patient participates in the discussion about the disease and about the treatment options. Right. One day in my lifetime, I hope, we will have the ability to practice personalized medicine which you had hinted at before, where we can kind of drill down on an individual level to see what's wrong with you and figure out what treatment option is going to be the, the most effective and the safest for you. So I'd like to finish my thought on this as if you're on the wrong medicine for the wrong condition at the wrong dose, right. it really doesn't matter what the reproductive safety data is. Right. Those three things have to be in place first. Right. Before we worry about whether you should stay on your medicine in pregnancy. Shari, thank you so much for coming here today and for talking to our listeners about this. This is such an important topic. I am so glad that you're around. I mean, you're, <laughs> you, you are so helpful to us, to our patients, obviously, to everybody with what you do. Just, I'm just for our listeners, Dr. Luskin has a website. It's www.shariluskinmd. That's S H A R I L U S. S-K-I-N-M-D.com. We mentioned reprotox.org, which is a little more clinical, but mother2baby.org. Obviously, there's going to be links on my website as well for healthwoman.com. And we're certainly going to have you on again to discuss maybe specific conditions like 
you know, depression or anxiety or bipolar, or schizophrenia, whatever it is, because each of these deserve their own discussion or a specific medication. But again, thank you for coming on. This is a great start to this discussion. And uh, I'm going to continue to convince you to come back and come on. It's a pleasure to be on it. And congratulations on the podcast. I think you're going to reach a lot of women and their families through this, which is a great way to take complicated information and spread the wealth. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.